Thank you for tuning in to the Foundations Ministry Podcast. We are a sexual addiction ministry located in Fort Worth, Texas. To learn more about us, you can go to our website at www.foundationstexas.com. Hello and welcome. I'm glad you're taking some time to listen. I'm Sam, the leader of Foundations Ministry here in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm glad you're taking some time to listen to this topic. You know, I was thinking, um, and I've thought this often, that recovery groups really need to protect themselves. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. We in recovery environments, uh, whether it be a church group or a individual group like ours or an independent group or one of the bigger ones or counselors or, or whatever, when, when we're trying to establish these independent groups that will work effectively, it's important to recognize we're not inviting healthy people there. I mean, uh, when I first went into recovery, I wasn't healthy. I was an absolute mess. And not just that I wasn't healthy in the sense that I wasn't able to offer any value. My issues are destructive. And if not checked... I will strive to influence the environment I'm in. It's, it's like a type of nesting. And when I'm in environments that aren't protecting themselves against that, uh, I will influence them. I will. Uh, I, for my entire life, have been exceptionally outspoken. And uh, due to, uh, I attribute this to my mother, uh, very powerfully spoken as well. I speak with confidence, speak with emphasis. Uh, which no skill set or anything of that, uh, just something that I grew up with, so that's how I communicate. So when I go into an environment, I strive to influence it. Now, that influence in, in a healthy way is supposed to be a positive influence. How can I benefit those? But in my addiction, that's not how that works. I'm seeking to influence the environment such that I am given the most leeway, the most comfort, the most satisfaction, the most ease, and, and all those things. And I use a variety of different issues or I should say methods, in order to accomplish that end goal. And so if I'm brought into a recovery environment and they aren't ready to protect themselves against those issues, if their structures and boundaries don't protect themselves from that, then I will pull them towards my issues. I will create a type of nest. So so how does a recovery group and, and what is the most effective way for those these groups to protect ourselves from these unhealthy men? Uh, and it's a valid question to ask. I mean, I should be concerned because my issues are in that way. But I I've, right now uh, have the pleasure of working with a man where his issues are on the opposite side of the spectrum. He's always agreeable, always saying yes. He's a, we, we call it a scent. He says yes, but doesn't mean it. And uh, his way of getting into the group is, is convincing them all that they're on his side. And then he'll start dropping comments and negatively talking about his other relationships in order to kind of um, recruit me and the other men to his side to help convince us that that he really isn't that bad of a guy. Yeah, he's got issues, but he's not that bad of a guy. So it's not just the aggressive controlling dynamic. It's also the passive and, and so much variety in between all of those. How do I effectively protect against this kind of dynamic? And groups are trying to answer this question, to be fair. I, I'm not the first one to ask it. I won't be the last. But these groups are trying to do it. And the way I see it, there's a couple different approaches that are predominantly taken. Uh, Every group agrees that they should have guidelines. Some set of guidelines that we all agree to. So let's just remove that off the board. Obviously, we need some kind of plan. 
But then they end up setting up guidelines uh, that focus on certain aspects. And, and that's really where the challenge comes in. What aspects need to be emphasized in these guidelines? So I'll give you one, probably the most popular one out there, which is uh, no crosstalk. Uh, Celebrate Recovery does this. When I was first going to recovery, I was doing Celebrate Recovery. Uh, Celebrate Recovery does this. Lots of other groups have different versions of essentially the same rule. And no crosstalk is really very simple. It's just that in a group setting, when someone is sharing, I'm not supposed to ask them direct questions about what they're sharing. I'm not supposed to comment on what they're sharing. Um, the only comments that are allowed is where I'm I'm sharing about my own experiences. So the focus on self, no crosstalk, no, no back and forth in the group meeting. And oftentimes, though, it's taken to another level. It's taken to be that this is this is what makes it, I've heard it called a safe place, safe process. Now, I have no issue with a safe place, safe process, but but the emphasis on this kind of approach is that this is what makes it a safe place, safe process. And so it comes back to how are we keeping our group safe? Well, if I'm inviting in unhealthy people, then one of the ways I can keep my group safe is by saying, hey, you're unhealthy. If I allow you to challenge or question or do any of those types of things to another person, it's likely you're going to do it wrong. Uh, It's likely that because of my issues, I'm going to respond very poorly in that circumstance. And that's a valid point, to be fair. It really is valid. So how do we protect against that? Let's just remove it. Let's remove it entirely. But what's interesting is, then how do you handle the other scenario? And I'll paint a picture that is really exceptionally common. You have a man who comes into a group. And he is, he's acting out on some frequency, some regularity. And he's not stopping at all. He maybe lessens, like he goes from once every other day to once a week or to once a month or something. But he's still, it's very, very demonstrably cyclical. Just keeps on engaging in it. And he's at the group long enough that he's just part of the group. How do you handle that man? Right, because in the group setting, right, where no one's allowed to share anything and, and that man comes in and he shares well, you know, I've acted out again, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm playing around with it. And the first time you hear that, you might think, well, okay, you know, at least he's looking at it. That's a start. I mean, you all got to start somewhere when you first start dealing with these issues. Then he comes in the next time and he shares the same thing. And then the next time and he shares the same thing. And the next time he shares the same thing. Does the group need to protect itself from that? Let's ponder that for a moment, right? What would be the consequences of not addressing that? Well, I can speak from experience. It's definitely discouraging. It's discouraging to the entire group. But to be fair, I don't think that's a very strong reason to challenge it. But it's worth noting. It's very discouraging. It's especially discouraging to other men who are trying to gain sobriety. Uh, But it's discouraging not just at that level, at the level that I'm hearing a man constantly fail. It's discouraging because long term, I start to see that this person is not changing and I hear the lies. I can hear them. I mean, I'm an addict. I know how I lie to myself, but it's a heck of a lot easier to see it in other people. I hear it. And that it gets discouraging to hear that on a regular basis. It's tiring. There's those two factors, right? That's worth considering. Surely that's worth looking at more seriously, going, well, what are the consequences of not doing that? What does this produce? What dynamics does this encourage? Okay, well, let's look at another example to examine this further, right? So... What about the man who is in the group who honestly wants to change? 
and I, I've heard this before. Men comes in and he shares and he's talking about how how he's in a big conflict with his wife. And he's not sure his marriage is going to make it. And he's not sure he wants his marriage to make it. I'm thinking of a particular gentleman I heard several years back. Not confident he even wants it to go the right direction. He's just pouring out his heart about, about how ugly it is. And he doesn't know where to go or what to do. And and he's just he's, he's borderline just ready to quit. Whatever that looks like for him, he's borderline ready to quit. Let's, let's assume it's not suicidal uh, type talk, right? It's more like I just want to quit recovery, quit worrying about my marriage, quit all this stuff, right? Uh, so a man's in all that position. And he's sharing everything like that. Right, what about that? How do we protect the group from that? Well, what are we protecting it from? Well, once again, that man is part of the group. And if he's there regularly sharing in this manner, what influence does that have? Does it have none? That's one argument. Well, you know, people are messy and messy people come to group and it's not our job to manage uh, their mess. They have to make their own choice. I mean, uh, I heard it said that that uh, God, uh, they have to walk their own path, uh, which is kind of an odd thing to say because it, it's normally said in context of don't give feedback. Uh, but I want to point out something really fascinating to me about group environments. It's that when a man is in a group long enough, he develops relationships. I mean, you really can't stop that process from happening. He develops relationships, whether whether he likes it or not, just by nature of being around these men and sharing all the time. Relationships get developed. And with relationships comes a certain level of influence. It's a two-way street. We influence each other, but a certain level for sure. And the longer I'm in an environment like that where where no one is saying anything directly to me, like they might, uh, after the meeting, try to catch me if I don't bolt out of the room really quickly. Or they might, when I make a phone call on the rarest of occasions, challenge me. But the reality is, is no one's directly challenging me. Not on a regular basis in any form. And I've got these connections being built. Relationally, I am pulling them towards my way of thinking. And what's, what's interesting as well with that is not just that I'm pulling the regulars there towards that way of thinking. I am also exhausting massive influence over the new guys. When a new man comes in, he doesn't know who the healthy and unhealthy are. And he doesn't have the discernment to know. So I come in, I sit down and say, brand new guy, first day in recovery, first day in a particular group. And I'm just looking around and I, I'm doing what most men do. I'm gauging the room, new environment, trying to figure out who the leaders are, who the interactions are, what the relationships are. Maybe that's just me. That's what I'm doing. So in that environment, I am evaluating these things. I don't know who the boss is. I'll give you an example. When I first went to recovery, there was two elderly men there. I think they're both of the name Bob. And uh, one was in his, I want to say 70s, and the other was, I would say, late 50s. And I was 18 at the time, so they're both ancient in my mind. But they were the oldest men by appearance in that room. And because of that, I assumed they were the leaders. I came to find out later uh, that both of them were raging addicts who had just started. I didn't know that. I had no clue. Now, translate that to the man who is acting out on a cyclical basis, comes into the environment. He's around long enough that everyone gets accustomed to his acting out, to the point where it's not as serious anymore. It's not that big of a deal. It's not a real serious problem. What kind of influence does that have on the emphasis of the group for purity? I mean, really, if our sexual acting out issues are the tip of the iceberg, why, why would I think that acting out at any level is appropriate? 
whether it's once a month, once a week, or once a day. It has to be zero. My wife doesn't care how often I cheat on her. She wants it to be zero. It's not, well, I'd keep it down to five. That's stupid. No, she wants it to be zero. Once is too many. Well, that's what it is with acting out. Once is too many. I need to keep it to zero. So looking at this concept, there is a nature that comes out when we allow people to hang out in an environment where they can nest. Now, not all men do this. Many a man comes in and they go, well, I'm not changing and I don't like the fact that I have to share, so I'm going to quit. Right? That's more my personality, by the way. I'm, I'm very aggressive. Um, but the men who aren't aggressive, the men who are more passive in their interactions, they're very willing to nest. They will enter these environments and they will find a way to ingratiate themselves to relationships and then act in whatever manner they see fit. That's the goal. The goal is to, how can I make this as easy on me as possible? And I want to engage that way. And I will, I will put out effort to create that in my environment. So how do we protect against that? Because in my opinion, that is a responsibility. You know, I hear arguments for approaches to recovery that essentially say, we're just here to offer uh, material teaching and people to get people to talk to about these issues. And if you want to grow, then you can grow. If you don't, then that's not our problem. And I think, well, to a certain degree, that is, that is absolutely legitimate. Legit, uh, I mean, just clearly, that's a perfectly fine approach to going about things. But when I examine what it looks like in practice, what it looks like in practice is in the group they're taking that stance. Now, no one is required to come to a recovery group. In sexual addiction, I don't know of many places that mandate attendance. Now, I know sex offenders who are mandated to attend sexual addiction therapy, and some recovery groups are able to get onto that list if they've got the right credentials. But by and large, most, most sexual addiction groups, no one's mandated to be there. So there's no requirement that they be engaging in this environment. And even the ones that are required to be there in those rare cases, those often aren't the majority of them, unless you're in a counselor's group. So in this scenario where I'm dealing with men who have a choice to be there, if they're in the group, don't I bear a responsibility to communicate the truth with them? What do you think? Now, not to convince, but to communicate. You see, on one side, if I say no... I don't. Well, then I can simply abdicate all those responsibilities. My only job is essentially to show up, talk, and then let them talk. And if they're all sorts of messed up, just leave them be because that's not my issue. Which to me sounds a bit like what, um, what Cain said about his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for another man's actions? And I'll give you a warning And it's the same one that was given to Ezekiel. When God was commanding him to go out and speak to the people of Israel, he he actually told them, and this is fascinating. It's right in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, right? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he says to him, hey, look, you're going out to a rebellious nation, and they're not going to listen to you. I mean, can you imagine? That's such a bummer. (laughs) What a bummer it would be to be told, hey, Sam, Sam, you're going to be going out and speaking to these people, and they're not going to listen to a word you say. Oh, man, that's a rough start. Anyways, he tells them, though, hey, if you go and I tell you, show you that what they're doing is wicked and evil and it's going to bring about death and destruction, and you don't tell them, I'm going to hold their blood on your head. He says they'll still die in their iniquity. In other words, they're going to die because of their sin. But he says, I'm going to hold you responsible for it. 
And, and that's a fascinating statement when you think about the modern concept in our, in our churches and recovery groups about responsibility to my fellow man. It's easy for me to push that to the side, to say I'm not responsible for communicating with you because of all the social pressures that say if I'm speaking directly to you, I'm just trying to control you, which is just a load of baloney. I can't control, I can barely control myself, control other people by speaking to them. Are you kidding me? No, the reality is, the reality is, is that I need to be, I need to be recognizing that I am responsible for the relationships I have and the truth I speak to them and the truth I don't speak to them. So in a recovery environment, I think it's a fool's errand to try and argue that I don't have a responsibility to communicate truth. But then we come to the second part. Well, you might say, we do communicate truth. We have a lesson time in the beginning, and we have a sharing time, and we bring up a topic, and they're nice little guided lessons. That's our speaking truth. And I would, I would, call, uh, I would call BS on that, because the reality is, is that I'm not, I'm not actually communicating it to that person. There, there's a distinct difference between giving a lesson and having a conversation. You see, we were made to interact primarily through dialogue. We're made to go in a back-and-forth fashion. You know, that's one of the greatest challenges right now. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a job that's, that's, uh, that allows me to work remote during this crazy COVID time. And uh, one of the great, great tiresome parts of working remote uh, for these past three, three, four months is that when I'm talking with people, talking with them on the phone or talking with them via Skype or Teams or whatever, uh, is the delay how we end up talking over one another inevitably, and not because one person's being rude to another, simply because there's, there's a second or so delay. It's not real time. It's not right there, which is what, what really makes it easy to communicate. And just that little delay causes a problem. Just imagine the concept of only communicating through lecture. It's not effective. It's not effective. It's not a bad way to present material. Like what I'm doing right now is essentially communicating through lecture. But the real value is if you take what I'm communicating and you talk about it with me or with other people. Actually process through the ideas. Understand what are my assumptions about what's being said? Uh, what, what am I hearing versus what's actually being said? Um, how do I apply what's being said to my own life? Where, does, where are the pieces that fit? Where are the pieces that are like, oh, you know, that's just Sam's opinion and he's off his rocker. Where are all those chunks and components at play? By talking it through, not just with myself, though I can try to, if that's my only option, but talking it through with other people who are also willing and able and desiring to seek the truth. You see, if I only do sharing, where I'm only, I'm only communicating it in an impartial way, then I'm not communicating it at a relational level. And that's what's most necessary, is a relationally communicated truth. That's what we most need. That's what helps us take a concept that is abstract and external to ourselves and place it at an internal level that then affects our decisions. Otherwise, I'm still operating on my best thinking, and that's always led to destruction. But there's another factor to that. There's another factor. When, when I don't encourage feedback, when I don't encourage dialogue, then what I'm really doing is I'm removing that safety net to protect against these issues. Because let's go back to the scenarios we're trying to deal with. We're trying to deal with the man who is in the group, but not changing and growing in influence because he's never challenged. Now, see, a man may not change, but always be challenged. That's one thing. 
by challenged, I mean actually challenged. Not like, well, I think he's challenged by the lessons. No, I mean actually challenged by words. Uh, not growing in challenge, that's fine. Because then everyone knows where that man is at. And everyone is able to operate appropriately with him. In other words, the group is safe. Because there's two reasons you rebuke a fool, right? If that man is a fool. Which we don't know, really. I don't know the heart of a man. Two reasons. And the first one is is you hope that maybe you can pull them out of their foolishness. The second one is that the simple who are looking will become wise. They'll see the rebuke and go, I don't want to be that man. Because we all have two choices. I can either glorify God through his victory in my life, or I can glorify God by seeing how my life doesn't work apart from him. Either way, God is glorified. I don't have a choice in the matter. I don't have a choice in the matter. God will be glorified. It's just a question of which end of that spectrum I want it to be on. That's the choice I'm given. That's it. When I introduce feedback into a recovery environment, what it does is it protects the group from the issues of the attendees. Now, it still brings up the issue that how do you protect feedback? How do you prevent people from getting hurt? And I would argue, first off, that I think there's way too much fear about people getting, getting hurt. Legitimately, way too much fear. It's culturally driven. I think it's largely driven by the trauma focus. Um, and there's just far too much fear about that, that somehow or other, by addressing someone's issues, they're going to get pushed back. Now, on the other hand, I really like think, think what we need in recovery environments are a lot of formalized structures of what ultimately should be an informal process. So, so what do I mean by that? What I mean is addicts are kind of like, like kids who never grew up. I've heard it said that I'm only as mature as the issues I've dealt with. So if emotionally, uh, I, I was about 10 or 11 when I started looking at porn, but about 13 or 14 when I started, went into it addictively. So at about 13 or 14 is where I stopped emotionally maturing. Now, why? Because I was sexually acting out. I no longer dealt with my emotions in a healthy and mature manner. Instead, I went to porn porn and masturbation and uh and whatever other activities i could get into um so so that that i stopped it right there and so by the time i got to the age where i got into recovery it became obvious that i was very very immature and i had a lot of just growing to do in general with my maturity and so so i need a formalized structure that tells me this is an area where i can stabilize myself think of it like training wheels to go forward but I don't, just like training wheels, I don't want training wheels forever. They're just there to stabilize me enough so I don't crash over and over and over again. Uh, they're there long enough so that I can properly learn the basics before removing the training wheels and operating healthily. A great example of this in my life is when I was doing a, uh, the mentorship program, I had a boundary that I would only be professional with ladies who are not family. What that meant was I didn't joke with them, I didn't laugh with them, I didn't do any of that. I was always strictly professional. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. As, uh, as it was described to me and I describe it to others, I was boring. That was the goal because I had a pattern of being flirtatious. And I was married. And that's not appropriate when you're married. It's really not super appropriate when you're not married either, especially for a sex addict. He goes very inappropriate with it all the time. But it's aside the point, very obviously inappropriate for me. So I'm engaging in this behavior all the time, and I have this boundary. Well, I get to I get to the graduation of my program. I start looking going forward. My mentor, well, my former mentor, I should say, shares with me, you know, hey Sam, you need to um you need to look at how to interact with women in a different way. 
And he was directly responding to the fact that I had this boundary around not joking or interacting with them, just this hyper-professionalism towards all women. And he was pointing out that there's a need to figure out what does it look like to operate with them at a healthier level. I didn't need that level of strict structure anymore. Now, I did back then because I didn't have discernment. I didn't have the skills necessary to be healthy. So I grew in discernment. So the strict structure, the, the, the guidelines gave me, gave me something to balance against as I developed discernment. And then it become unnecessary to have them so strictly defined because my discernment had increased. And therefore, I was able to more healthily operate on a wider spectrum because I know where I'm at on it. I'm not going into the old ruts and activities that I used to go into. So structure. So when it comes to feedback, the same principle applies. We need to have a structured format for feedback. So we need feedback, but let's not pretend that we can just throw it out there and hope it works. That's foolish. You will get the consequences and results that you would expect from asking a bunch of unhealthy men to challenge one another. There's going to be guys that are pushing for control and they're just going to rip people apart. There's going to be guys that are too timid to say anything and they're just going to pat everyone on the back and tell them how awesome they are. There's going to be huge arguments and blowouts. and It's going to be ugly and it's going to be tough. So formalized feedback is important. So I, to protect against that, to protect against the fact that I'm dealing with unhealthy people is you formalize the process. In our groups, we have some very basic boundaries with feedback. First off, with feedback, one person speaks at a time. He shares what he's going to share. And then the other person, generally the one giving him feedback, asks questions. They go back and forth on the questions. Once that man is done asking questions, that's it. The goal is never to convince. Never to convince. It is only to explore and present. So what do I mean by that? I mean it's to explore an idea because I don't know everything about you. I'm just trying to better understand where you're at in your life. Asking questions is a great way to understand that stuff. Just to understand. I mean, how can I give good feedback if I don't know where you're really at? And I ask questions to better understand. Understand your terminology. Understand what things mean to you. Where the emotions are at. What the motives are. And to listen to all that. To hear it all. Not because I think there's necessarily something wrong there. Just because as I understand, I can give better feedback. And then the second part then at that is to help see something. To reveal something that I see to be true. Or maybe just something that needs to be explored. But the goal is never to force the man to agree. When feedback turns into an argument, it's failed. The goal is just, hey, are you willing to consider this and look at this? And that's it. And if he goes, well, no, I'm not willing to consider it. I'm not willing to look at it. Then we look at that. Go like, okay, well, you know, that's interesting. Why not? No, is, it, is it too dangerous? Would it cost too much? Is it just that this is a load of crocs? Do you just not like my hairstyle? I mean, what's really going on? But by formalizing it, just some basic boundaries that then the leaders help enforce, right? And over time, it takes about a year. Over time, men start getting really proficient at it. And then they just manage the boundaries themselves. It becomes the natural way for them to operate because it makes it safe. I may not like the insights they're sharing with me. I may not appreciate the insights that they're sharing with me. But that's not the issue. Who cares? Because the feedback process is formalized. After it's done, we go back to the social interactions that we've always been doing. And we develop really close relationships as a result. And the most awesome thing about doing this, not only does it protect, not only does it protect against the man who comes into the group and just wants to hang out, and then by nature, when one man does that, more come in that want to do that, and it pulls the entire group down like a weight on your ankle. It just pulls everyone down. But you have some guys that pop up, but not a lot. 
becomes this kind of tar that you're stuck in. When you introduce this concept, what it does is it, it removes the opportunity for the man who legitimately doesn't want to change to be comfortable. Because he's constantly getting challenged through feedback. Constantly. It gives opportunity for the man who is stuck but really wants to change to actually do it. Because no longer is he wandering around just hoping he figures it out. He's actually hearing input from other people as to what directions not to go at minimum. I mean, that's got to help some, right? Don't go this direction. I went that direction and that didn't work. But even better than that is as, as time progresses, it becomes really easy to see things that like, hey, have you considered trying this? Because in all honesty, most feedback is bonehead simple. I mean, it's stuff like, well, gee, you know, you're acting out a lot on your computer. Have you considered putting some accountability on there? Have you considered some different boundaries around that that involve more accountability? This isn't rocket science, right? It's rarely complicated stuff, to be fair. It's just that in my addiction, I've got all these issues that get in the way. So feedback is often clear, and it's often easy to share and see. And the goal is just to help them see it. Help each other see it. Not just me help you see it, but you help me see my issues as well. And there's another factor of it. It should be mutual. Because when it's mutual, we understand that this isn't something where I'm sitting here being demanded that I, I just do what you say. This is something where this is how we communicate. And I could go on and on about the benefits of this type of approach because it's such an aspect that has been lost. I mean, so totally lost in how we interact as a people. We no longer have real dialogue. We no longer have the capability to hear an idea and go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to honestly consider that idea even though it rubs me the wrong way. I mean, honestly consider it. It's really, really hard to do that. Really hard. It takes humility. It takes a, a willingness. And in my addiction, that's the thing getting in my way most times. I really believe my own junk. I need other voices in my life if I'm going to be successful. And that's the final piece of this. When this is introduced, I tell you the success rate of these groups skyrockets. Because the men who are, who are, who are immersed in this type of interaction, they grow strong. They grow strong. They can't help but grow strong. There's spiritual reasons for that. If you look at the Bible and you look at what it prescribes in the New Testament for dealing with sin, the answer is feedback. Whenever you see the word encourage, remember that that is talking about rebuking, exhorting, and uplifting. All three, rebuke, exhort, uplift. It's not just nice words. It is the caring enough to try and push someone towards the right thing, to Uh, For example, I encourage people to make phone calls. That doesn't mean I'm going, you're such a great guy for making phone calls. I'm encouraging them. I'm trying to push them towards something that's healthy. That encouragement, whenever you see that in scripture, that's what it's talking about. So when you read in Hebrews chapter 3 about how uh, how about speaking the truth to, to one another with love, right? Uh, uh, what is it? No, but let, let us encourage one another day after day while it's still called today so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you not get hardened? Speak the truth to one another day after day. No, I'm sorry, but encourage one another day after day while it is still called today. Daily do this with one another. In Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 4, it talks about talks about how, you know, the man who gets um, gets blown about by the winds and, and tossed here and there by every wave and deceitful teaching and the cunning craftiness of men. Then it goes, but speaking the truth in love, we will grow into Christ who is the head of the church. Right, so instead of getting tossed around by everything, if we speak the truth in love, we'll grow. And then the most popular one by far is James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. 
I mean, think about this. Every, I, I challenge you, every time it talks about the redemption process for sin, when it talks about our human interactions in regards to dealing with sin in our midst, it always refers to communication, speaking the truth with love. Always. So our goal with feedback is to get to that point, speaking the truth with love. Again, a formal process for what must ultimately be an informal thing. So it's formalized here, but the goal is informal. And what does that do? It protects the recovery group, which is really my whole point. It's fascinating to me because whenever I'm engaged in recovery groups that don't have this as an aspect, the first thing I start to notice is how many men are present. Because, you know, I'm a sex addict, so I'm going to men's groups. Um, How many sex addicts are present who have no sobriety? I mean, little to none. The man with a year of sobriety is king. I've got over 12 years, my goodness, 13, 14, going something like that, years of sobriety now. And to me, a year, I'm thinking that's, that's good. It's a start. It's, it's certainly the right direction. But there's so much more than just that. And to have an entire group that has no concept of that, like that's, that's the most basic thing to establish. How does that happen? Well, one of the things is they haven't protected themselves. Now, I've not been to every group. I've not been to your group. I've not been to your, your sessions or anything like that. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it's across the board like that. What I'm saying is if you don't protect yourself, if the group is not protecting itself, there will be an impact. And the best way, the prescribed way, as far as I'm concerned, for protecting ourselves is through healthy dialogue. We formalize it here. Because we see it as that important. It is not something that's just like, hey, here's a practical concept that we can use if it fits. No, this is a fundamental reality to the process. In other words, in my opinion, if you remove feedback from the recovery process, it becomes a guessing game. It becomes a game where some people will be successful just because they really, really are motivated to, but most won't. In other words, they don't become successful because of the environment. They could become successful because they're starving for anything. They're willing to do whatever it takes to be successful. They make the most out of what little is available. As opposed to environments that incorporate this feedback, those that stick it out always grow. And that to me is a fascinating thing that I have seen in practice. Again, I've been doing this for a long time, about 14 years. Um, To see that in practice is really quite amazing. Quite amazing. And I think it's well worth considering, why is that the case? Why is that the case? If you're in an environment where you don't have feedback and you don't know of one that does, then then by all means, don't not go. It's good to be around people that want to change. And seek it in that environment. Maybe the group doesn't offer it, but most groups encourage phone calls. Take advantage. Go out to dinner. Go out to lunch. Take guys out to coffee. Make it something where you are always getting feedback. Find the men who are willing to challenge you and gravitate towards them. Stay away from the guys that are just going to pat you on the back and tell you how awesome you are. They aren't trustworthy. They really aren't. They are self-centered buggers because all they care about is their relationship and them feeling good. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy multiply. Remember that concept. All right. Find men who will challenge you. Make it what it needs to be. If you don't have a group, find people who will challenge you. Encourage them to challenge you. Look for that type of feedback. I mean, it's not bad if someone's willing to share good things, but if they aren't willing to share the bad things, then they aren't trustworthy. That's a bit like mom, right? I'd bring my mom my pictures. No matter what I drew, she thought it was awesome. So she was a rather untrustworthy source, and I recognized that. 
So don't, don't, don't go to untrustworthy sources because it's not about having a nice feeling. It's about actually growing. And I need people who will speak the truth. And hopefully people that won't just speak it with brutal clarity. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. But people who will speak it with love. I need that. I really, really need that. So find it. Make it happen. Stay engaged with those groups. Uh, because there's people there who also are seeking truth and want to grow and whatnot. Because it's, it's the structure that I have an issue with. Not the people. It's the structure. The structure is not effective, and that's the problem. They've gone to a certain level, and they, they, just, they just need to go to that next step, and there's various issues that are getting in the way of that. So focus in on that. If you're in the DFW area, there, there are some groups I've heard about in this area, not many, uh, but our groups do it. Attend one of our groups. You know, we meet on Tuesday nights over at Eagle Mountain Baptist Church up in um, uh, Fort Worth area, and we meet over at uh, City on a Hill on Saturday mornings. You know, Join us. Join us. Get to know the guys. Interact with that. We need to be growing. All of us need to be growing. Be engaged. Be proactive and move forward. And if you're leading a group, I really, really challenge you to consider, are you protecting the group from these issues? Do you have a swath of men who are hanging out but not growing? And by growing, I don't mean that they're sharing a lot of nice insights. Words are empty. Do their actions demonstrate growth? It's not sufficient for me to stop doing something as frequently. If I murdered someone once a day and I went down to once a month, would I be considered making progress? Absolutely not, not in any context. All I've done is achieved a lesser level of evil. That's not what we look for. We look for prevention and stop. So if you have people that are continuing to act out, that's not progress. They need to stop that because the real issues are under the surface. The acting out is going to mask those. And until it's dealt with, I can't deal with anything else. So really examine that. And if you see signs of issues here, then deal with them. Deal with them. Prayerfully consider that maybe feedback should be incorporated. Because I'm telling you, I earnestly believe that this is the one fundamental piece that is missing from so many recovery groups. And they could do so much more if they were willing to do the difficult work of incorporating it in and going forward, because that's what matters. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. It was really fun to go over this topic. I'm very passionate about feedback. Uh, I think it's an essential concept that must be applied. And I hope you have a great day, and I will talk with you again later.